Okay, um, good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, first of all, I wanna thank all of you who responded to my uh, survey on UB Learns uh, about the recorded lectures. I think there was, um, there are a few people who really like them. Uh, many people were sort of indifferent. Some people, uh, few people actively dis disliked them. Uh, and I think what I'm going to do is I am going to stop doing the recorded lectures as a matter of routine. I might do um, a, a lecture on some particular point that I know is going to be difficult uh, for the upcoming class, and I might do that. Uh, the other thing I'm going to do, though, is uh, instead of doing lectures, I'm going to share my PowerPoints with you uh, in advance of class. Since I'm doing that anyway, I'm, I'm preparing the... Uh, PowerPoints as I do the lectures and organize the, the classes, it's easier to do that. So that way you'll have the uh, outline of the PowerPoints giving you the key points uh, that I think are important. And you'll also have all the material in front of you to uh, take notes from and so on. Uh, also something I do is, is like if, if a student asks a question uh, that I think is a, a useful question that uh, other students are probably confused about, I will usually share that with the group. And I found that, that uh, sometimes I can give a short, uh, concise explanation in written form that way, possibly better than on a lecture. Uh, so I'll be doing that. So I think that'll meet most people's needs. And uh, of course, I will continue to record the classes and they're still available for those of you who want to review uh, your material that way. I think it's a good way to do it. But um, honestly, I'm not a good lecturer speaking into a camera and a microphone. That's not a natural uh, feeling for me. So and I think I tend to be better uh, talking to a bunch of actual human faces. So I think that'll be more, more, more pleasant for everybody. So um, anybody, anybody, anyone have any comments or thoughts on that? Nope. All right. Um, so what I'm gonna do again, starting, so there'll be no recorded lecture this week and starting this weekend, I will send you the slides for each class uh, a day or two ahead of time. Uh, so you'll have them uh, as early ahead of time as I, as I can make it. Okay. Nice thing about video is I can turn off my camera if I have to yawn or something. Uh, this is like my, my most tired time of the day. So I, I'm always sort of to take a breath and and rest myself off for class okay so today we're talking about rule 1.13 and rule 1.13 is uh has to do with the lawyer's rep, uh, responsibilities in uh representing an organization as a client now this means not just a corporate client that's sort of maybe the most uh uh, I, iconic perhaps kind of organization that we think of as requiring legal representation, but it can mean any kind of organization. It can mean uh, a partnership. It can mean a, an informal uh, 
you know, uh, association of some sort, uh, uh, a church, a parish, uh, pretty much any group that you can think of that might have uh, legal needs as a group uh, would come under Rule 1.13. And the first provision here, the basic provision is that um, this really should be perhaps obvious, so it's, it's, but it states it. Uh, a lawyer employed by an org or retained by an organization represents the organization, clearly. Uh, represents the organization rather than the individuals that make up the organization or that comprise the organization. And again, so in the in the case of a um, camera, okay, okay, in the case of a corporation. The constituents include officers, directors, employees, shareholders. Not every kind of organization has shareholders. Uh, they make part. They make up a, a corporation. Other types of associations may have different kinds of organizational structures. There might be a uh, uh, board of directors. There might be uh, an executive board. Whatever, however, it's organized. So, in representing an organization. Is frequently going to involve some uh, sense, some looking into how the organization is structured uh, in terms of who are the responsible parties and who may need to be communicated with and who may need to have information shared with them. So one, so one question, why are we, why is this material in, uh, in the section on conflicts of interest? That might be a question, but the reason is because one of the basic questions we have to ask when dealing with conflicts of interest issues is figuring out who is the client, who is my client. And we have, when you look at an organization, it can be a tendency. Uh, I mean, legally, you look at it and logically, too, perhaps you look at an organization, a lawyer represents the organization, but you don't, you don't sit down and have a meeting with an organization, you have a meeting with people, right? So a lawyer can only communicate and deal with an organization through its authorized representatives, which would be, you know, the, the board of directors, CEO, and so on. Um, it's easy to confuse those and uh, individuals within organizations don't always uh, keep that straight, that a lawyer's responsibilities to the organizations may in some instances conflict with the interests of the individual members of the organization, individual members of the board of directors or the CEO or the president. So conflicts of interest issues arise throughout, throughout this. Okay. Um, and again, closely connected always with conflicts of interest issues is the issue of confidentiality, right? That is so, sort of the, the prime value that we're protecting when we deal with conflicts of interest questions. So with, with an organization, as long as a lawyer is communicating with any member of that organization, in that person, the, the constituent's organizational capacity, the communication is protected by Rule 1.6. In other words, uh, 
you're talking with the uh, with the uh, CEO of the of the corporation about your golf game, uh, that's typically not going to be confidential. But if you're talking with the CEO about legal matters relating to the uh, to the uh, organization to the corporation, if you're talking with a middle manager about legal legal matters relating to the corporation, that's going to be protected by Rule 1.6. So confidentiality is a duty owed to the organization, the organizational client. Typically, so how do you know that they're talking in the, that the constituent is speaking in, the, in their organizational capacity? This frequently comes up in the interest, in the uh, uh, instance of internal investigations, corporate internal investigations, which happen all the time. Uh, it may be SEC investigations involving uh, insider trading or whatever. It may involve criminal investigations, such as bribery, perhaps uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, perhaps uh, toxic torts, you know, chemical dumping and so on. In any of those matters, Typically, uh, an investigation arises when the organization, someone within your organization, perhaps a middle manager reports it up, but eventually the directors discover that there is an, an investigation coming or that something has happened that will probably lead to investigation. In that case, they will typically hire a lawyer, an outside firm typically, to uh, to do an internal investigation so that the lawyer, the, the uh, organization can be prepared, can determine what happened, um, where things went wrong, and uh, perhaps prepare, prepare a defense for an oncoming, upcoming investigation. So the purposes of a uh, corporate internal investigation are to mitigate risk of liability and financial loss, right? If you can, if you can see that there's a problem, someone has done something that is illegal, and that illegality could be imputed to the organization, you want to minimize that. You want to stop it um, to prevent loss to the organization. You want to uh, figure out what happened and prevent it from happening again. And sometimes you want to assign blame. And sometimes you want to figure out who is the responsible party in this organization. How do we not know about it? Assuming we didn't know about it, sometimes the organization does know about it. Sometimes that uh, wrongdoing can go uh, uh, higher up. But we can sort of, you know, our, face, our first assumption is that it doesn't, that if there's wrong good doing going on within the organization, the people up at the top will want to know about it and will want to put a stop to it. So, um, let's see. Okay. So that's the first part of it. Section A, when you represent an organization, you represent the organization not any of the people in it. Now, it's possible a lawyer may, in some instances, be able to represent both, may be able to represent the organization and also you know, a member of the board of directors or multiple members or the president or something like that. But then the usual conflict of interest principles apply. As, as long as their interests are, are uh, generally aligned and there's very little conflict between them, a lawyer could, uh, you know, choose to accept representation of it, um, uh, constituents of the organization, but typically not. I mean, what, what the basic uh, 
structures. When, when a, a lawyer represents an organization, they represent the organization. And the assumption is they're not representing anyone else unless they make a separate agreement, uh, which again me would mean that you would have to have informed consent from both the organization or the, the uh, group within the organization authorized to make the decision and give informed consent, and then the individuals within the organization who you're also representing. So um, that doesn't happen too often, really. It's probably best to avoid that if you can, because typically conflicts will arise. So the next question is, so there's two, two, ish, two areas where if the lawyer discovers that there's been some kind of wrongdoing, um, they may have two kinds of responsibilities to inform somebody. The first is reporting up within the organization. Uh, and that's what we'll talk about under section B. Under section C, and again, in some instances, a lawyer may have a re responsibility to report out, to disclose information, even if it is confidential, to whatever uh, party might be appropriate to prevent harm to the organization. So section B, if a lawyer for his organization knows that an officer, employee, or other person associated with the organization is engaged in action, intends to act, or refuses to act in the matter, okay, so it can be either is doing something or is ignoring something that they have a responsibility in some way to stop. Um, so acts, both acts and omissions. If, they, if the lawyer knows that somebody within the organization is acting or intends to act in a matter that uh, relates to representation, that is, first of all, either a violation of a legal obligation to the organization, for instance, uh, let's say the treasurer is embezzling funds. That's, that's a legal obligation to the organization or it might be a violation of law that reasonably might be imputed to the organization. And that's the example I gave of, say, uh, where a, uh, a company is uh, disposing, uh, improperly disposing of chemical waste. And maybe that's because of some decision by a, a middle manager somewhere or a, a factory manager at one of their locations to do that. Um, Obviously that, again, that would probably be imputed to the organization, even though it's that individual who did it. So if a lawyer, <coughs> excuse me, lawyer knows that someone, pardon me. Lawyer knows that someone is violating a legal obligation to the organization or uh, another violation of law and that violation is likely to result in substantial injury to the organization, then the lawyer shall proceed as it's reasonably necessary in the best interest of the organization. Now notice again, that second part of it, if this violation of law or violation of legal obligation is going to result in um, harm to the organization, that's when the lawyer has a duty to do something about it. So this is not, you know, say, say a, com a company is uh, dumping chemical waste into the, into the uh, groundwater that might get into the drinking water in your local community. And that could cause uh, death or substantial bodily harm to individuals within the community. Um, you have the right, you have the ability to disclose that under Rule 1.6a. 
right? So the 1.6 uh, 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 exceptions still apply here. Um, think of rule 1.13 as more in line with uh, exceptions 1.B, 2, and 3, those exceptions that sort of deal with protecting the interest of, the, of a client or uh, the financial interest or property of a person, right? So if that, if that violation is likely to result in substantial injury to the organization, then the lawyer has to do something, whatever is reasonably necessary in the best interest of the organization, right? If there's harm to others going on, another exception might apply. But under these circumstances, where this rule is set up uh, to protect the organization, Okay, so what does the lawyer have to do? Um, ordinarily, you have to refer to uh, you refer that matter to people higher, higher authority in the organization, unless the lawyer reasonably believes that it's not necessary in the best interest of the organization to do so. The lawyer shall refer the matter to higher authority in the organization. Perhaps um, some chemical spillage is going on because some middle manager is not aware of the uh, re uh, regulations, perhaps. And perhaps the lawyer talking to that middle manager and explaining the regulations and explaining the consequences, if they have to report it, would be enough to stop it. Right? In that case, it may be not be necessary to refer it to higher authority in the organization. Um, this could include, though, if, if the lawyer decides to do have to report it, it could go mean going all the way up, right? Not just from a, like a middle manager to a factory manager or whatever, but to the highest authority, typically a board of directors or a executive board or whatever would be the appropriate organ, uh, organizational group. Uh, in determining whether that is the fact, so, Okay. All right. Um, knowledge, again, as sort of as it's defined in Rule 1.0, also means um, knowledge can be inferred from the circumstances. So a lawyer cannot ignore the obvious. You can't be willfully blind uh, to wrongdoing. You know, if if the situation is such that a lawyer must have known, should have known. Uh, reasonably should have known in the situation, uh, then knowledge can be inferred and the lawyer can be responsible. Okay, uh, and also remember, because I said here, um, okay, when there's this sort of wrongdoing going on, violation of uh, legal obligation to the organization or violation of law that will result in substantial injury to the organization, the lawyer must refer. It says the lawyer shall refer the matter to higher authority. So it's not a it's not optional. You have to do it unless the lawyer reasonably believes that they can do it in some other way. All right. Okay. Another important factor is how substantial is this loss to the organization likely to be? And so factors to look at include things like how serious is the violation and its consequences, uh, you know, like what 
are the penalties, uh, are there substantial penalties uh, under criminal law or federal law or whatever, um, the responsibility organization and the apparent motivation of the person involved. Um, and again, that might uh, relate to how high up in the organization, what level of responsibility the person has. Uh, does the organization have any policies regarding such matters and then any other relevant considerations? So this doesn't give us a whole lot of guidance, but this is, these are some of the things that a lawyer can look at in deciding whether they have a, a, uh, an obligation to report matters up to the, uh, uh, to the organization. Uh, this does not per, uh, prohibit a lawyer from uh, reporting things up if they maybe are unsure if they rise to this level of seriousness. A lawyer can, can still certainly report up. Uh, when they're this serious and match the uh, re, uh, requirements of section 1.13b, the lawyer has no choice. The lawyer has to report it up. Um, another question that will often arise uh, oh, looks like I may have some things out of order. Oh, where is this? Here we go. Okay. Substantial loss to the organization. One thing that will happen may happen is that um, you'll be told, um, hey, if we don't tell anybody, no one will find out and it won't cost us anything. You know, no one will find out about this violation, this legal violation. Um, and the rule is not clear on that. So that is a, an argument that can be made. Uh, but the best reading, I think, and most people think, is that uh, you have to assume that substantial loss means assuming that is discovered, not the fact that, well, we can, we can cover it up, we can hide it and the feds will never find out about it. Uh, because that would simply incentivize the, uh, both the organization and the lawyer to look the other way and not, uh, not do anything to remedy this harm. Because this, this is a rule that is intended to certainly to, to protect the organization, but also to protect the public. We want organizations, if there's something going on, some hazardous situation, we want the organization to learn about it and stop it and make sure it doesn't happen again. So it's, it's not, uh, not solely, excuse me, it's not solely for the protection of the organization. So where are we again? Okay. Sorry, my slides are out of order. That's a shame. Okay, so paragraph C. Paragraph C is the uh, reporting out function. So again, except as provided in paragraph D, which we'll get to, if the lawyer has tried to report it up, you know, they reported it all the way up to the highest authority, the board of directors, whoever that might be, and the organization doesn't address it, doesn't do anything about it, uh, doesn't act on something that is clearly a violation of law, so presumably, if the, if the organization is doing something that will cause loss to the organization, or if it's a violation of an obligation to the organization, maybe the board of directors can waive that obligation. But if it's a violation of law, they can't. 
then the lawyer has, you know, so if, if the, the lawyer is reported up, the higher authorities, highest authorities have not done anything. The lawyer reasonably believes that the violation is reasonably certain to result in substantial injury to the organization so that it will cause substantial injury. It'll cause maybe substantial penalties, uh, substantial fines, whatever. Then the lawyer is permitted to reveal information whether or not rule 1.6 permits such disclosure. Okay, so even if there's no exception under 1.6 that, that would allow the disclosure, this section allows the lawyer to report outside. So if there's insider trading or something going on and it's causing harm, and it's a violation of the law, the, law, the, report, the lawyer may report it to whatever law enforcement agency or other appropriate authority might be necessary to prevent the injury to their organization. Frank? Yeah, I just have a question. I want to go back, like, what can be an example of um, a situation where there, where, where there is like a violation of a legal duty of, an, of someone within the company? What can mm -hmm. be like an example of it instead of like a violation of law? Uh, how can we differentiate like what type of situations a lawyer must report? Like, Regarding legal um, duties, legal uh, violation of uh, legal obligation to the to the organization might be breach of fiduciary duty of some kind. Or you know, board of directors have a duty to, um, depending on the kind of organization it is, you know, they might have a uh, duty to, uh, you know seek shareholder value. Uh, again, different officers might have duties within, uh, you know, uh, treasurer has a, a duty within an organization to maintain financial records. If they're not doing that, that could cause harm to the organization. Uh, so that's that sort of thing. If there's some legal organization, legal obligation within the organization, even if it wouldn't necessarily cause harm to anyone outside, that would fall under that first provision. And, and then secondly, would, would be if the, if the harm would affect people outside of the organization. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, under, under paragraph C, again, the revelation or disclosure is permissive. It's not mandatory here. The lawyer doesn't have to reveal such information outside um, and if they do decide to disclose they may do so only to the extent the lawyer reasonably believes necessary to prevent the harm that he's trying to prevent right um, don't blab everything that you've learned uh, in re uh, respect to the representation but if you've learned that there's something going on and that by disclosing some information you can um, prevent it uh, then you, the lawyer has the, uh, has the permission, it may ethically choose to disclose that. Um, now, there may be instances, um, perhaps like under, under the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, or maybe others, other statutes where there is an obligation to, uh, you know, a, a legal obligation to report certain kinds of information, to disclose information, um, then that would, that would that would apply 
So that would, the lawyer would have to comply with that, presumably, in most situations. And one, okay, but one area though, where the way this differs from 1.6b exceptions, uh, b2 and b3, remember, if um, the lawyer may disclose to prevent or mitigate uh, substantial loss to the financial interest or property of another, um, where the client has committed a crime or fraud in furtherance of which they've used the lawyer's services. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. So um, the client has uh, had the lawyer produce documents or affidavits or, or uh, loan applications or something that turn out to be fraudulent. Um, and the, so the lawyer has, without their knowledge, been roped into this fraud or this crime. Those, those two sections, uh, 1.6b2 and b3, allow the lawyer to disclose. In this case, it doesn't matter whether the lawyer's uh, services have been, have been used in the crime. Uh, so the, again, that middle manager or factory manager who's dumping chemicals into the river, um, the lawyer have, may have had nothing to do with it. But it's in, within the lawyer's uh, representation to uh, protect the organization from liability and to ensure that they're complying with the laws. So disclosure would be permitted under this section if it's an organizational client. Okay. Anthony? Yeah, so in determining who the highest authority is, like say uh, there's like some sort of financial fraud going on and the highest authority mm -hmm. of financial matters is like the CFO and the CFO refuses to act, would you have to go to like a different authority before you can act? Or is that, since that's the highest authority of financial matters in the organization, can you then act outside the, the, the organization? Doesn't the CFO though report to the board of directors? Uh, so, so you would go to the board of directors then? Yeah, right. Yeah, so you that would be typically the highest authority within the organization. Okay, um, let's go back to the the section B on reporting up within the organization. Okay, you find out that there's some wrongdoing going on, um, you decide to report up to the higher authorities, even to the highest authorities. Is that a, is that a, does that make that another exception to confidentiality? Is that a, a, an exception to rule 1.6 or not? Okay, uh, it, it's, it's not. It's not an exception to confidentiality because again, the client is the organization. So if a constituent within the organization communicates information to another constituent within the organization, it's still confidential, right? Um, which is a tricky matter when a lawyer is doing uh, one of these internal investigations. A lawyer can, uh, and I think we'll talk about more the, later on in the, in, the, in the semester when we talk about duty of truthfulness to third parties. Uh, a lawyer doing that investigation is going to want to get uh, employees and constituents to cooperate with him. And typically the, uh, the way that happens is the board, 
or the CEO or somebody sends out a memo to everybody, a letter to everybody in the, in the organization saying, because of some legal matter, we have our lawyer will be doing some interviews and please communicate, please uh, cooperate with him and give him all the information he asked for. Um, and typically a lawyer may say to that person, to his employee, uh, don't worry, anything we say is confidential, okay? That's a misleading statement or can be, right? Because what that means is it's confidential within the organization. It doesn't mean uh, if the lawyer is implying that, don't worry, I won't tell anyone else in the organization. You won't get in trouble. That's not what it means. So um, to do that properly, a lawyer has to, uh, well, the, that letter that goes out requiring cooperation, that makes it part of the constituent's um, legal obligation to the organization. So that fits within the protection of confidentiality. So that if, but the lawyer then may, be, may get in trouble if they may, may be in violation of the rules, if they mislead a, a, a constituent of the organization, an employee, and make them think that they're representing that constituent when they're not. So you have to be careful about that. Uh, Sarah, your hand is up. Yes, Professor, I have a question. Relating to the requirement mm -hmm. for the matter to be related to the lawyer's representation. So let's say the organization has hired a securities counsel or a regulatory compliance counsel and the matter is about um, some sexual crime going on. Does that let the lawyer off the hook for reporting or be because just because they are part of the organization, they still have a duty to report either in or either up or out. I think, uh, again, you know, there might be, I don't know, there might be cases that rule differently, but to me, it, it, I think that would mean, you, it would depend on what the lawyer's scope of representation is. So uh, presumably if it's, you know, if, if it's in-house counsel, general counsel, um, perhaps there would be some uh, part of their employment contract or whatever that just describes what legal matters they're meant to look out for. General counsel typically has some responsibility to look out for everything, I would think. So if there's sexual harassment going on within the organization, that's a violation of law, right? So uh, yeah, so then presumably internal counsel would have some obligation to report that up. Right. If somebody is uh, uh, somebody is reporting is sexually harassing someone, you might have to report it. If it's a public employee, you might have to report all the way up to the governor's office, and surely it'll stop there, uh, or maybe not. But uh, so yeah, I think so. I think it would include that. Um, certainly, if if the, if the uh, for a company that's employing outside counsel they're gonna employ them for certain specific matters. So if uh, say the outside counsel is, is investigating say a securities matter for the company and they learn that there is some sexual harassment going on, um, again, there's no obligation to report it up, but they may choose to, okay? All right, that's a good question, thank you. All right, so, Here we go. Oh, slide. So 
Rule 1.3, unlike the, ex the exceptions of Rule 1.6, Rule 1.3 protects the corporate client or the organizational client against wrongdoing by its constituents. It does not primarily protect the public against wrongdoing by the corporation. Although there may, there may be some sort of incidental protection. Um, and actually that's what the problem for today will we'll discuss uh, to some extent. Uh, but again, as I said, the Rule 1.6b exceptions that are intended to protect the public and others still apply to organization clients as well. So Rule 1.13 doesn't mean that uh, organizations have no responsibility to others. Okay. Oh, Section D. Okay. Again, coming back to these internal investigations that I'm talking about. Uh, so paragraph C, which which permits reporting out, right? Where you can go tell the authorities about something after the organization and the board of directors and all have refused to do anything about it, does not apply uh, with respect to information relating to a lawyer's representation of an organization to investigate alleged violation of law. So if, if the lawyer is, is representing the organization in connection with one of these internal investigations, it's meant to be internal, right? So that the the uh, 1.13D does not allow the lawyer to report out on the very matter that he's investigating. It's like, um, again, going back to row 1.13, uh, well, the 1.6 1. Uh, exceptions, a lawyer, has to report or may report a crime if the crime was done with the lawyer's assistance, where it was done, where the lawyer's work was used in furtherance of the crime. But you don't have to report about the crime that you're defending your client for, right? That's the whole purpose of the representation. That's the whole purpose of confidentiality. So when the lawyer is doing that investigation, uh, the the lawyer is not under Rule 1.3 uh, required to report out any information they discover in the course of the investigation. Certainly if litigation ensues and there's discovery and so on, there may be an obligation to, discuss, to disclose it later, but not, not under 1.3C. Okay, so it does not apply when it is related either to investigating a, a violation of the law or defending the organization. Finally, there are a couple of other sections which we'll talk about later. Um, what happens if people get mad? Sometimes people in an organization don't like being told bad news, being told that they're, that they're in trouble, that someone below them is uh, committing uh, violations of the law, or maybe uh, that the organization with the cooperation of the board of directors with the higher ups is violating the law. That happens. So a lawyer who reasonably believes that he has been discharged because of the lawyer's actions taken pursuant to paragraphs B or C. Okay, so you report up to the higher ups, so even if it's just with the internal reporting and they decide to fire you. And you feel pretty sure it's because of your sticking your nose in where they didn't want it stuck. Okay, what happens then? 
the lawyer, then the lawyer shall proceed. Again, that's required. The lawyer must proceed as the lawyer reasonably believes necessary to assure that the organization's highest authority is informed of the lawyer's discharge or withdrawal. So say, um, you know, you, you, you do some investigation, say maybe the general counsel fires you or whoever else in the organization has authority to fire you, fires you. Then the lawyer is obligated under this to bring that to the attention of the board of directors, the highest authority in the organization. What if you're fired by the board of directors? It doesn't give us much help there. Gianna? That's basically what I was just going to say. If it is the higher authority that was the one that fired you, I don't see what good this rule does. Um, you know, it also doesn't create like an actual mm -hmm. claim or anything. So it's basically just you have a duty to report this to the highest authority. If that happens to be the one who fired you, you're out of luck. Yeah, well, it's it's somewhat like the um, the rule 8.3 duty to 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 uh, report misconduct. You know, if a lawyer is fired by their law firm for doing that, uh, what are their options? In most states, uh, lawyers are considered, even a law firm are considered uh, employees at will. So the, the law firm can fire them. If they're a partner, there may be some, uh, may require a vote or something like that. Um, and we, I, we didn't spend much time on it, but there, I think Illinois and New York are two states that do have some protection and that under the, those circumstances for a lawyer uh, who has a duty to report and is fired or to report misconduct and is fired because of it has some protection under the law. Most states, not so. Uh, this is the very same thing. It's just with respect to a lawyer who's employed by a, an organization rather than by a law firm. And that again, that that's what the problem that we'll talk about uh, asks. Okay, so we'll get into that. Anybody else? Questions? Comments? I mean, yeah, so how about like the situation where we have like the lawyer who sits uh, on the board of directors? Uh, like, would that create a conflict of interest that would like prevent the lawyer to report up? Uh, to the board of directors or is there like any other options for the lawyer to do in that case? There certainly can be uh, conflicts of interest when the lawyer sits on the board of directors. Um, yeah, I, certainly at that point, the lawyer has a responsibility under 1.13 1, 1. to disclose to the rest of the board of directors that this wrongdoing has happened. Um, Another problem that arises with the lawyer on the board of directors is uh, if the board of directors thinks that everything they say in any of their meetings or any other discussions with that lawyer is therefore confidential, right? Because it's not. If they're discussing business matters, it's not confidential. Only if the lawyer is acting in his uh, function as lawyer for the organization, then uh, are those discussions protected by confidentiality. So yeah, so that, I mean, there are, there are advantages to a lawyer being on the board of directors. It can be beneficial for the, for the firm to have a lawyer who's associated that closely with the firm, but it can also lead to all kinds of conflicts of interest for the lawyer. 
So it's it's a problematic thing to do. Anybody else? All right. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to turn over to you guys in your small groups and you're going to work on problem 8-2. Because uh, I think that's a more interesting problem than one I had originally signed on this, assigned on the syllabus. 8.2 on page 454. It's a short problem, um, but lots of issues and lots of things to deal with. Um, and this this really puts a, uh, uh, the burden on you as you're going through this, thinking about okay, what does the rule? What do the rules require? What burden does the rule do the rules put on a lawyer in this position? And then, secondly, think if I were in this position, how would I respond? How would I handle it? Okay, so I'm going to give you. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give you seven minutes on this one. And um, again, I'm not going to drop in on on the groups. I think because I don't want to interrupt when you're having a productive discussion. But again, just just uh, send me a chat message if you have any questions, and I will I will then I will drop in. I will drop in by invitation, like a vampire. You have to invite me in. All right, everybody. So I'll see you in seven minutes. Okay. Um, Lizzie Bourne or Elizabeth Bourne? Yeah. Hi. Yes, hi. Um, what did your group decide? What are you um, going to do here? We focused on 1.13c and um, kind of talked about how, um, like, um, the like reporting it to the highest authority in this point wouldn't really do much because it's the president and the vice president and they're the ones who are engaging in like um, the um, giving the loans. Um, and we also talked about how um, uh, that it would likely, if this were to come to like be known and discovered, it would result in the substantial harm to the organiz organization itself. Um, so we found that reporting out would be um, the best option at this point. Okay. Um, what's going to happen after you do that? Um, we talked about how they would, the individual would possibly be fired for, for that. Um, and then we went to 1.13E. Um, and also we kind of struggled with this because obviously then reporting it to the highest authority would be reporting it to the individual who fired you at, in, the, in this case. Um, mm. So we kind of went back and forth with that too. Okay, so 1.13b would require reporting it up to, to Thad Connor. Uh, 1.13c would be if you've done that, or maybe you just decide it's not even going to be worth it. So you probably you decide well report. You should probably do that. Well, that's a good question. Now, could you report out without reporting up? We talked about reporting um, out without reporting up yes um, mm -hmm. um would that be would that be permitted under 
C says, okay, uh, comment six rule 1.13 C says, uh, under paragraph C, the lawyer may reveal such information only when the organization's highest authority insists upon or fails to address threatened or ongoing action that is clearly a violation of law and then only to the extent the lawyer reasonably is necessary. So. Okay, yeah, so I guess we were focusing on the ongoing violation of the law and thought that in that yeah. case, but I then that makes sense that reporting up first would, you would have to do that before. Yeah, yeah, as I'm looking at that, it, it's unclear to me. Let me share the screen again. Okay, lawyer may, so in other words, the lawyer may not reveal such information unless the organization's highest authority insists upon or fails to address threatened or ongoing action that is clearly a violation of law. So does that mean that Does that mean that the lawyer may report out only after the reporting it up first? Brian, your hand is up. The way we talked about it, and we did discuss this, we figured you might as well try to, to report it up first because whether you get fired or not, it seemed like rule 1.2D would require you to quit if, um, if they didn't, you know, take heed. I'm, this is just sort of based on duties. It's kind of hard to say specifically, but we figured as general counsel, it would be hard to say that you weren't engaging or insist or assisting in criminal activity. So it it just seemed like at that point, you, you really um, don't have anything to lose by reporting it up. Well, it could use job. Well, but but if, but if they don't pay yeah. attention to you, it seemed like you were going to have to leave anyway. Yeah, yeah. good point. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, to to me, you could you could read that paragraph either way, um, or this comment, either that it requires. You could read it, argue that it means that the lawyer has that obligation to report up first. Um, and that's probably a good reading of it because, I mean, but whether, I mean, either in that case, either they're going to fire you before reporting it out or after, right? Um, so maybe it doesn't matter. Can anybody make another argument, uh, argument for maybe why there's no obligation to report here? Well, for, let me press. Did anybody decide they weren't going to report out? We're all friends here. You can be honest. 
Sorry, I'm making you guys dizzy. Okay, so here's the here's the requirement. Okay, uh, oh, Kristen. I actually just had a question um, because our group kind of talked about relaying the information to the son first, the vice president, because um, you know under B it kind of says you can refer the matter to higher authority. It doesn't necessarily say the highest authority that can take mm -hmm. that um, can act on behalf of the organization. Um, so is that a correct reading of the rule or do you have to go to like the actual top person? No, I think you're right. You could, you don't have to go to the top person. You can, you could go to the son because we're not told what, that he likes to fire people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and my, maybe he would do something about it. Uh, so that, that's a good point. Uh, and Lucy, your hand was up too. Um, yeah, mine was in regard to your last question. I guess just at the mm -hmm. crux, 1.13c isn't mandatory. So by that alone, you don't have an obligation to report. Um, and it uses the word may right under um, C2. So I guess with that alone, there's your argument that you don't have to report if you do not believe that there is a violation or you don't believe that there. Um, I think it was substantial injury. I, I'm just referring back to the language quickly. Oh, violation of law. Mm -hmm. I think there would be a violation of law here because there's possible criminal charges. I just, because of the permissiveness of this section, um, you have the choice as the lawyer. So you would choose not to report out? I would choose to report out, but I think um, mm -hmm. you have that choice. Because of the language. So of the under that under that situation, let's let's say this. I mean, this is a um, okay. So we we have uh, a pretty certain knowledge that this uh, skimming uh, and violating the usury or the violating the usury laws is going on. We know that. Um, so we we do know that. But you you would say I mean you say so you're raising the argument that a lawyer could just say, well, I don't have to report out, so I'm just not going to do it. So, I mean, that's a good argument, um, but you decided you would do it anyway. Personally, I would. Yeah. Who likes that argument that, hey, maybe, you know, since I don't have to do it, I'll just keep my mouth shut. Gianna? I just have a question. By like optional, yeah. Lucy, do you mean like, if it's not likely to result in substantial injury? Because it seems like if you believed it were likely to result in substantial injury that you would have to report it, correct? Let's see. Okay. I Let didn't mean to say control. substantial injury there. I meant violation of law. I just misspoke. I was okay. looking back at. Um, so violation of law. That okay. That might be imputed. Okay. The lawyer shall proceed proceed as is reasonably necessary in the best interest of the organization. So you have to do something, right? And okay. what is that ordinarily in, going to going, mean? Oh, sorry. And going along with Lucy's okay. argument, though, could you say that proceeding as reasonably necessary might include not reporting it? Because I'm just trying to figure out where does this discretionary part come in in the rule? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, the reporting out is discretionary. The reporting up is not, you know, if this, there's, you know, about this violation, it's going to result in substantial injury, then the lawyer shall proceed as is reasonably necessary in the best interest of the organization. 
So is there any argument that reporting up would not be in the best interest of the organization? Mitchell? Yeah, I mean, one thing that we, we looked at, I mean, again, like our group overall came out that we should report up and out if necessary. But I think an argument that could be made is that, um, you know, you would have to look at, you know, what are the chances that, you know, this sort of behavior is going to be sort of found out if you're just looking at, you know, what's in the best interest of the organization. Obviously, the organization is making pretty substantial profits, I'm assuming, from this sort of loan practice. So is this a, mm-hmm. a common thing that competitors potentially do too, and it just isn't usually picked up on? You know, what are the mm-hmm. you know sort of risks of just continuing on? You know, I think those would be questions you'd want to ask if you're just sort of looking at it for more of a, you know, not just kind of looking at like the dollars and cents of the situation, I guess. So are you, are you looking then at like, what's the likelihood of prosecution or? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just saying like, you know, in terms of, you know, overall, it's like what, what's best for the corporation or for the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, mm-hmm. if, you know, I, I just think it would be something to look at. Like, is this a common thing that happens in this industry, even though it's technically illegal? Um, what are the chances of prosecution, you know, and I think those would be things, you know, if you took the angle that, you know, you weren't going to report it, you'd have to look at sort of for the, the overall impact on the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, we, we're not told that anybody that any one person in the organization is sneaking through these laws or these usury, uh, these high uh, interest loans, mortgage loans. Um, so I think it's pretty clear that this would be imputed to the organization. Just, you know, that's also, I'm just adding that in. Um, but then, then I, mean, I think you're, you're raising that question of um, how like, what does, what does likelihood of substantial injury mean? Like if, if we don't report it, is that, is like a substantial injury going to, going to come anyway? Right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And again, I, th- I I think the the um, the language is can be read that way. Um, It'd be an interesting question to put on a, on a final exam, which I'm not going to do. I'm just going to tell you about it. I suppose you were um, suppose you're assistant general counsel, and you're the one that discovered this, okay? And you're uncertain whether you had a duty to report up, and so you ask the general counsel, and he says, "Oh, don't worry about it. Don't report up. It's not a problem." So is that a reasonable resolution of an arguable question of professional duty under 5.2b? And I don't expect you to have an answer. I'm just saying that raises that that raises a whole another issue then in that situation. That's where it gets fun, right? It's when we put, you know, when these rules start intersecting with each other. Um, okay, so and I guess uh, what answer to that is 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 there is there legal authority in your jurisdiction that has addressed that question about um, 
say, and I guess the question would be whether there's a duty to report up under Rule 1.3, 1.13, and if there is, then then it's not an arguable question, right? Maybe. Um, anybody else have any additional arguments on either side to make here? You guys are so quiet. That's one thing you like when in a real classroom, at least people are moving in their seats and you have some noise. But <laughs> let's oh, see. Um, I guess you said it already, uh, but our group actually did bring up 5.2 because we were worried that even if you're not required to do something by rule 1.13, that if the organization is eventually found to be consistently breaking the law, that you could get disbarred for keeping quiet. Um, but we went back and forth on that. I mean, ultimately we would report either way, but. Yeah. And one, one factor would be, okay, remember we did talk a little about a row 4.1. Um, I forget which subsection is 4.1 is the duty to um, report a mis material misstatement of fact, if that's the, if that's necessary to, if that's the only way you can pre prevent participating in a crime. Remember that vaguely? Um, I can pull that up, I think. You guys aren't in a hurry, are you? Um, okay, so in the course of representing clients shall not knowingly fail to disclose a material fact when disclosure is necessary to avoid assisting a crime, a criminal or fraudulent act by a client, unless disclosure is prohibited by Rule 1.6. So, um, okay, so the question here would be, is the lawyer somehow assisting in a criminal fraud uh, or criminal or fraudulent act in connection with this, these uh, usurious loans, right? Um, so, um, and I guess it could be if there's, uh, depending on, we need more facts but if there is some sort of certification that the lawyer has drafted, has written or, or, or submitted, um, maybe to the state on their loan rates, you know, if there's something that has been misstated or, um, you know, if, if, if the, those if the rates on those loans have been misstated, then 4.1b would require you to disclose that, right? But we're not told that in this in this problem, but that that's again another complication that could arise. Um, okay, well, let, let, next step then. Okay, look, at, let's talk again about one point one three e. Um, suppose you are fired. Do you think you have a, um, let me pull that one up again. 
So lawyer shall proceed as reasonable. Suppose you are fired. Do you have a defense? Could you could you bring a claim of wrongful discharge in this situation? What are we told? Um, the state here is a, an at-will employment state, right? So ordinarily, the employee, employer can fire you at any time for any reason or no reason. Uh, however, there is a common law exception that bars firing. So that you know, this this is sort of the general wrongful termination rule, right? If a lawyer, uh, an employee at will, can be discharged for any reason or for no reason, but not for a bad reason, not for a reason that is against public policy, right? Where termination of employment constitutes a violation of a clear and substantial public policy. Is that the case here? Would your firing then have constituted a violation of a clear and substantial public policy? What would that do for you? Well, you could, you could uh, sue for back pay. Um, what would the public policy be here if you were going to make that argument? Well, I'd say these loans are high interest loans. So that would be harming, you know, whatever, whatever potential clients are pursuing these loans. So I guess from a public policy standpoint, that'd be for the benefit of the, the general public, you know, maybe not all the people that are getting these loans have a ton of money. So there might be a, a you know, a huge, a substantial burden to them. So the fact that you're reporting okay, so a criminal the, violation. So the, the home buyers, yes. the home buyers are, are being protected by these uh, usury laws. Yes. Um, and your firing then would be instrumental in continuing that. You know, or, uh, I guess That's what I would way. argue if I was doing the public uh, policy yeah. perspective for that there. You know, you're, you're reporting yeah. a clear criminal violation and this affects the general consuming mm -hmm. public. So I think that would be, I mean, that'd be your best argument. I think we talked about like examples early on. It seemed like it's kind of tough to get this mm -hmm. wrongful discharge in your favor, if I, if I recall correctly. Yeah. But if I was arguing, yeah, you know, in favor of that, that, that'd be my public policy argument there for that reason. Okay. Thank you. I don't know that it works. That's what I would do. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, I'd say the public policy aligns with rule 2.1 here. Um, lawyers, whether they're representing an organization or an individual, they shouldn't just be telling the individual what they want to hear. Like lawyers are hired for a reason to give like an objective view on things. And by allowing a lawyer just to be fired for this reason, um, kind of silences lawyers in that situation. Okay. So, so certainly at least within the ethical rules, there's a policy that lawyers should provide candidate advice. All right. Okay. Austin. There's a policy that when an employer is breaking the law, we want the uh, employees to be able to tell the employer about it without, you know, fear of retribution and being fired. Okay. Where do we find, how do you find out what a public policy is? Has anybody talked about that in any of your classes? I guess that'd be maybe in a contracts class or something. You talk about public policy arguments? I mean, I've, I've even had that in like trademark class. We'd have like prudential arguments, so policy arguments. So, I mean, we'd find those um, couched within case law, I guess. I mean, I've found policy arguments 
couched within case law, even up, even up to the Supreme Public, Court. Yeah, policy arguments. Let's see, um, Jacob. Yeah, I was just going to add. Um, this might you being fired might violate some public interest in whistleblower laws. Um, I believe there's an act for census corporation if it's publicly traded then one of those whistleblower laws could apply to this and there's public policy in protecting whistleblowers mm -hmm. it doesn't look like this is a publicly traded corporation it's relatively small that's why there's no board of directors to report it to there's just the the owner and president right so yeah i, I think that's but that's a good point uh anthony uh, yeah, we kind of went over these in uh, employment law, like currently. Um, so the public policy has to relate to an actual public harm. So like um, in a case of like embezzlement or something like that, where the harm is to a single private entity, um, a public policy um, argument isn't going to stick. So the, so the harm has to actually harm the public. Right, so if, if it were embezzlement, <laughs> you wouldn't have a, a leg to stand on. But in this one, again, getting back to the idea that the state usury laws, maybe the state usury laws create a public policy of, um, of uh, protecting uh, consumers, home buyers, from uh, exploitative loans. Right? Um, this, this, again, is based on a real case. Um, case of Hang versus International Document Services from Utah in 2015. <coughs> in that situation, the lawyer was fired for reporting the usury violations to the president of the corporation. Um, General counsel sued for wrongful discharge, uh, claiming, uh, invoking the common law exception, the, uh, the, the uh, public policy argument. Um, he used Rule 1.13 to say that there was a clear and substantial public policy in favor of reporting illegality up the corporate ladder. And the court said no. The court said, Utah, Utah Supreme Court said that one, Rule 1.13 did not reflect a clear and substantial public policy. It said that rules of professional conduct could express such policies, but 1.13 did not because although it indirectly benefits the public, its primary purpose is to regulate private conduct between a lawyer and his or her client and to minimize the regulatory risks of his employer's out-of-state lending practices. So, um, okay, actually his case was dismissed without a hearing and the dismissal was affirmed by the Utah Supreme Court. So the court said that um, rule 1.13, the ethical rule does not, does not reflect a clear and substantial public policy. Okay. Um, court says, so the court distinguishes uh, between rules of uh, professional conduct and statutes. Typically, statutes are uh, a primary source you look at to determine public policy because then the legis legislature has established a policy, right? Um, yeah, but since Rule 1.13 is a, a judge-made rule, I mean, it's adopted by the court, there's no public policy there. 
Do you think that that's a good argument? Do you think the court was correct in that? Jacob? Uh, I think you could make an argument that there could be a public policy and that the need for those rules stem from a need, a public policy need of regulating the legal practice. So there, you could potentially argue that even though it's a judge made, there's a public policy in someone making those rules. And so, you know, it kind of indirectly stems from the public. So you could argue with the court's premise that the rule does not create a public policy because judges made the rule, um, but judges aren't supposed to make rules in theory, right? Legislatures are supposed to do that. But the judges didn't make the usury laws, right? The legislature presumably made the usury laws So that would be the basis for the public policy argument, I think, right? And maybe um, the lawyer, you know, the lawyer's lawyer, when he brought the suit for wrongful uh, termination, just maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he didn't cite the um, usury laws as the public policy. If he just based his argument on rule 1.13, um, and the lawyer's duty to report out or to actually, what did he do? He didn't even report out. He reported up and was fired. So it might be either that the lawyer didn't base his public policy argument on a solid enough basis. They should have based it on that on the usury laws rather than on the ethical the rules of professional responsibility, right? Or maybe the court was wrong. Maybe the court was wrong in not looking beyond the ethical rule, maybe, and saying that there is a public policy here. Brian, what do you think? I was just wondering if maybe you'd have a stronger leg to stand on trying to make that argument if you had reported out. Um, uh, otherwise, it just seems a little self-serving, mm -hmm. you know, but if you had made an effort uh, on behalf of the public by reporting out, I, I just think that that would be a more solid argument. Well, I'm looking at rule 1.313E. Okay. Lawyer reasonably believes that he's been discharged nonetheless is required to report it out, right? Report, report that the lawyer has been fired. In this case, um, there's nobody to report up to because the highest authority is the one who fired him, right? Um, and again, 1.13e does not does not create a, a cause of action for wrongful discharge, right? It simply says a lawyer has a duty to report and um, 
you take your chances on what happens after that, right? Like rule 8.3, uh, 8.3a, the, the, uh, there's, the lawyer has, or whichever, the lawyer has a duty to report misconduct, but it doesn't say anything because it can't. The ethical rules don't have authority or, or jurisdiction to create law to create to to modify the employment law of the state, um, which seems like a big uh, a big problem, right? Um, so the, the the authors of the case with fire, whether you think the uh, the uh, the um, the job, the court in Utah was incorrect. Um, and their final comment is uh, a lawyer in a state with no precedent on the legality of firing at will lawyers for reporting Ill illegality in management must decide what to do, taking account of the harm to the corporation, herself, and the public if she allows the criminality to continue, right? Um, so again, I guess it sort of leaves you in the position of, of um, it's a matter of conscience, maybe, a matter of um, how secure you feel in, um, your ability to find another job pretty quickly. Um, but this is meant to be a difficult situation, right? That, that's why the problem is written this way. Um, and I think it's easy in a court, in, in, here in a, in a classroom to all say, well, of course we do the right thing, but you can, you can imagine, put yourself in that position that this could be a hard choice to make, right? Another way of looking at these, um, some of these questions might be, rather than have you ask, what would you do in this situation, is have you be like a, a, a more experienced lawyer uh, whom this person has come to for advice, how would you, what would you advise them to do, right? How would you be comfortable advising a younger lawyer to do in this situation? And we, I might, I might make some of the questions or, or revise some of the problems in that way, because it gives you a little different perspective on it. Any final comments? Nope. Okay. So, oh, Megan. I guess the unfortunate reality in these kinds of situations is that there's two ultimate outcomes, one of which you're disbarred because you didn't report the illegalities and it was discovered later and one of which you have to find a new job mm -hmm. so in advising mm -hmm. a younger attorney you have to decide do you still want to be a lawyer at the end of the day because there's one possible outcome where you won't get to be anymore it's one possible outcome um but again you not not every disciplinary case results in disbarment you uh, you might get a uh, suspension a three-month suspension, you might get a, a, a disciplinary, what an admonition, a written admonition, uh, and maybe if you know, the more experienced attorney who is advising you might have some experience with a disciplinary committee and, and be able to advise you, well, in a case like this, it, probably the, the, the harshest penalty is going to be a three-month suspension, but they can't guarantee that. 
So again, ultimately, it's still you, you still have to decide. You have to you know make your decision based on the uh, uh, you know the advice you've been given and your 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 knowledge of the situation. That's a good good comment. So I guess my question uh, to you then, Professor, mm -hmm. sorry, just because none of us are yeah. attorneys, um, which would be mm -hmm. better coming from an employment standard um, or coming from an employment perspective, which would be a less detrimental mark on your resume that you've had a three month suspension due to ethical violations or that you've been relieved of a position at a company that was violating because you whistle blew, for example, which is which is I think it depends on what kind of yeah, what kind of employer you're looking for? If, if you hope to get hired by an ethical firm, I think that um, uh, being fired by an unethical company um, maybe isn't going to be that bad. If you're hoping to get hired by an unethical firm who is willing to cut corners for their clients, um, I hope that's not what you're looking to get hired by. But I would think that, again, if... if um, the fact that you were fired for doing your job should not be that much of a back black mark in, in law firm hiring. Again, for an ethical firm. Yeah. Thank you. That, okay. Anybody else? All right. So I guess we're going to call it. We're going to adjourn for today. And again, I'll be around if anybody has questions. And no lecture this weekend. So in, enjoy the weather and happy St. Patrick's Day. And I'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank Take you. care. Have a good Thank weekend. You. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.